everybody doing in the middle of the week here as we gather together? Everybody doing good? I pray. We're going to get back to the book of Joel. Because that's where we're at. Turn to Joel chapter 1. Pick up in verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. We've taken our time getting started here. Had a couple of little interruptions and a couple of opposite studies and then some worship time. And so now we begin to dig into the meat and the day of Assyria. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time tonight just reminding you of what you should know by now, but we've been a couple of weeks out, that as you look at all of the structure of the Old Testament prophetic works, all of them find their culmination in the final day of the Lord. All of them do. And so whether you're looking at what we saw last time, which is this locust plague that was an absolute event that occurred in Joel's time, to the next thing that we're going to see tonight, which is the onslaught that's brought by Assyria under the commander Sennacherib, as that would be an actual event, each of those things typifies or is a type of something that's greater and yet to come. And so no matter what event you want to pull out of human history, and one of the reasons that people have a tough time with the prophetic Word of God, because almost a third of your Bible is prophetic in nature. So if you don't like prophecy, you kind of don't like most of the Bible. Uh, It is prophetic in nature almost through and through. And so as we begin to now launch into the meat of this small book, what you have to look at is... These things, as they are being described, have they ever occurred before? And as we will see, the locust plague happened. The Assyrian onslaught happened. But we're going to get a description of events that have not ever happened. And so we're looking forward in that sense while not looking past the day. So when people say, oh, people have been talking about the rapture for, you know, 2,000 years. People have been talking about the second coming of Christ for 2,000 years. People have been talking about the day of the Lord for 2,000 years. Those are true statements. The problem is, is how close are we to those events actually taking place? Then, you could have said, long ways off, distant horizon. Things would come along that we would know, this is a type, this is what it will look like. But you have to read carefully the Word of God. And when you do you come to the inescapable conclusion that your Bible describes some events that have never happened. And as surely as the locust invasion occurred, as surely as the Assyrians came, followed by the Babylonians, followed by the Romans, followed by Hitler, the worst is yet to come in that regard. Remember, it is both great and terrible. For us, we're heading towards greatness. And I don't mean individual greatness per se. I mean that one day we're stepping out of this life and into eternity. Amen? If you've been following what's going on in our world, it's like even so... I've been, I grew up in the generation where the phrase was coined uh, from the Greek, Maranatha. We would say Maranatha to one another constantly. Lord, come! And we're this close. I remember the the days where we would hold up our finger and say, One way, Jesus. And we were pointing up. That day's much, much closer than it was when I first came to Christ. I, I don't know, but as I look at my Bible, I am very certain that the things that lie ahead are not on the distant horizon They're over the next hill. And so tonight, we'll pick up in verse 15. And the first use, by the way, chronologically speaking, of this phrase, the day of the Lord. This precedes all of the others found in Isaiah. 
Now, in Zechariah, this is it. This is the first time it's used. And if you know anything about Bible interpretation, the first time it's used is the definition for the rest of the times it's used. And it becomes very clear in the book of Joel that this is pointing towards a time that's yet future. And so let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for the attentiveness of your people to your word. Thanks for the blessing of being able to worship you. And Father, we pray tonight that your grace would be poured out on our world. Lord, it just seems like every day we wake up and something more abominable than the last has occurred. Some other step in the wrong direction has taken place. And Lord, we know as those things increase that you, Jesus, as you spoke in the Olivet Discourse, as you spoke on the Mount of Olives, said that these birth pangs in the last days would increase. The timing would get shorter and shorter, and they would get more intense. And so, Lord, because we know you, we look forward to that day when the trumpet sounds. But, Lord, for the lost, we want to be busy about our Father's business. And so instruct us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 15, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And as you... Circle that, underline it, put in the margin, first time in Scripture. Because this marks the time going forward for the usage of this phrase. And it shall come, notice this, again, underline it, circle it, underscore it, highlight it. Where is it going to come from? Is it going to come because mankind increasingly gets worse and worse and worse and worse? To some degree, the answer to that would be yes. Is it going to happen because the age of grace will come to an end? To some degree, the answer to that is also yes. But ultimately, it comes from the hand of Almighty God. When that final chapter begins to unfold, it will be because God has said, it's time. God is patient. He is long-suffering. His word says that he's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Amen? That's the truth of it. That's God's perspective on things. And God has given now, in the age of grace, 2,013 really years of, of time, if you will, since the birth of the Lord. And so as the age of grace unfolded, and then it actually begins when Jesus says it's finished, So for almost 2,000 solid years now, grace has been available to mankind. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That simple. Can I ask you a simple question? What's mankind done with it? What's mankind doing with it today? What does mankind think of Jesus today? Jesus is a cuss word. Jesus is a cuss word. Jesus can't be displayed. If it were not so crude and unacceptable, and and I just couldn't do it for moral reasons, I guarantee you, I could put up nearly nude pictures of women in my front yard with lights on them, and I'd probably get very few complaints, except from you all. (laughs) Connie, yeah. (laughs) Connie would, yeah. But I guarantee you, I put up a a nativity scene, which, by the way, we are going to do, because I just want to test the waters. I'm like that. You put up a nativity scene... You put over that, Jesus is the reason for the season, and all hell will break loose. What have we done with grace? America's going backwards, folks. I wish it were not so. But I'm not, I'm not seeing a revival starting. I'm seeing downhill banana peels, what I can see going on right now. It's just, it's, it's miserable. Because I look at our world. 
It says it will come as destruction from the Almighty. And we'll get the exact reason when we get to chapter 3. And he goes on now to describe what happens under the Assyrians as they would come. Is not the food cut off before your eyes, the joy and gladness from the house of our God? Think of it. You've seen pictures of this. Nazi Germany, prior to the rise of Hitler, was the most Christian nation on earth. The most Christian. 93.275% Christian. All it takes for evil to prevail is for good people to do nothing. Give up what you already have. Stop caring. Worry about political correctness. Worry about what the government's going to give you versus telling the government how it ought to operate. Instead of being salt and light, being a place where the handouts can be deposited. By the way, the entitlement mentality of our day is found nowhere in Scripture. Scripture plainly says the man who does not work should not eat. That a man who takes care not of his own household is worse than an unbeliever. That's what it says. It doesn't say, whine about it to somebody long enough and they'll give you what you need. That's a sign that we're slipping That's a sign that we've lost the right kind of self-pride that says, you know what, I'm going to do it. The disciples were working folk, largely. They weren't sitting around on the shore of the Sea of Galilee with their hands out going, man, boy, I hope I get something from somebody. I hope Tiberius comes across from Tiberius over there and gives us something. And you know what happened? They couldn't even worship the Lord anymore. You know what happened in Nazi Germany? You couldn't work in the house of the Lord. The pastors were locked up. The Bibles burned. Crystal knocked. Thousands upon thousands, ultimately millions of books. Especially if they were Christian books. The seed shrivels from under the clods. The storehouses are in shambles. The barns are broken down, for the grain has withered. And how the animals groan and the herds and the cattle are restless because there's no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out. See, Joel knows where to turn. The problem is it's too late because it was judgment then from the Almighty. Can I remind you that one of the sides of God that we don't like to talk about is the fact that one day he's going to say, I have had enough. And all of the justification of mankind and everything that we think we're so right in as we judge the world for ourselves and determine what is or is not right or correct instead of turning to a holy, just, and loving God, by the way, His ways, His practices, and His principles, when we begin to make up our own rules about how this world is supposed to operate, function, and then we begin to do it our way, not a single society in human history has ever survived that mentality. Not one. And we won't be the first. The sheep begin to suffer. Lord, do you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all of the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry out to you. Remember that God made the beasts of the field. Now, I don't know how God speaks to them, and I don't know how they speak to God. But I do know this. God made them, and he knows exactly what they're groaning about. Except for cats. You know cats are the only domesticated animal that are not mentioned in the Bible? 
Just wanted to share that with you. Dogs, they're there. No cats. There's nothing about cats. Lions, yes, but house cats, no. Hallelujah. <laughs> For the water brooks are dried up, and the fire has devoured the open pastures. And so it begins here with this description of a world at that time locally that would be destroyed under the Assyrian onslaught. And so we have a picture here of how prophecy should be viewed. Partial and present, seen in all kinds of types of history. As you look at history, you can see that the Assyrians, you can see that the Babylonians, all the way up into our present day, and probably really the last global conflict that you could directly point to and say this is really truly a type of the last days, would have been World War II. I think these other the wars that we've had are certainly just as horrific, and people are just as heroic in their efforts in them, but they were not global on the scale that's going to be talked about next. You couldn't say that the Vietnam War was a global war. It was a horrific war. I have many friends whose names are on that wall. I've gone by and looked at them, and you know, so we're not talking about the, the value of each and individual human life. We're talking about the scope to where people didn't have what they needed to survive. When you look at World War II, you can literally see how this existed to some degree in some places. When the Allied forces firebombed Dresden, there was nothing left. Forty square miles of zilch, nothing, burned to the ground. Not a single thing left. Of course, when we dropped atomic weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives, and hundreds of thousands more would die later from the effects of radiation. The type of scale, people didn't have enough food. People were foraging wherever they could. But it is going to get worse. So you have the great battles, the wars like we have in Babylon and Assyria, the Great Tribulation, will actually begin the final period of history. And some of the initial skirmishes, even of that, will only be partial and predictive, substantial to a certain point. But there's coming a day of the Lord that's going to be greater than all of these. And as we will see, it will be described in great detail. So the locusts were partial, and they were present, as well as predictive. The Assyrians were absolutely predictive of what would happen. So when they came, when Sennacherib came, uh, he eventually made it all the way. If you look at modern Israel today, he came from the north in what is modern-day Syria today. He came down through the Eshkol Valley, wiped out basically everything and everyone on the northern half all the way down to what is now modern-day Tiberias in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, completely destroying all of the farmlands that lied in that area, which is most of the farmlands at the time, you have to remember, because at that time they had not taken the water from the Jordan and from the Sea of Galilee and used it to irrigate other areas in mass quantities as it exists today. But those were the farmlands, and if they didn't get their food from there, they surely didn't get them from the Judean foothills. Little tiny family farms could not feed the population of the area. But in that sense, when they came, they burned everything. That was one of their war tactics. Because what they would then do is create a dependence upon the Assyrians. And if the Assyrians did not feed them, then you died. And so we see exactly how this pictures what will happen if you do not serve the Antichrist, you will die. We see that when the locusts came through, if you were on the wrong side of that battle, you didn't eat. So you can see how it's partial, it's predictive, it's also substantial, but it's not the real thing because it's not a global scale. It's a regional scale. Sennacherib was an, was an uh, Arcadian 
And, and he, he actually was based in Nineveh. And for those of you that know your Bible history, you know that Nineveh was where Jonah was supposed to go. Amen? I want you to go to the Ninevites. There's a reason that Jonah wouldn't go to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were the ones that took ten of the twelve tribes of Israel and wiped them out. I'm not going there. Not going to happen. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrians. It's in modern-day Iraq. And so by the time this general of the Assyrian army comes with his forces, he's all the way to Mount Scopus, which is about two miles, as the crow flies, from the center of the Temple Mount. That's how far Sennacherib made it. And if you read the account in Second Kings, Isaiah, and Chronicles, you're going to find out that were it not for a miracle of the Lord, described by the prophet Isaiah that in one night the angel of the Lord went into the camp of the Assyrians and slaughtered 185,000 of the Assyrian army, there wouldn't have been any need for the Babylonians. But because God intervened in grace, and hear this well, because God intervened in grace and says, I'm going to give you an opportunity to repent and to turn, Because it was so bad that King Hezekiah, and if you read Isaiah's account of this war, King Hezekiah tried to make an allegiance with Sennacherib. And it required so much gold that they emptied the treasury of the Jews, so far as to strip the gold from Solomon's temple to try and buy him off. It didn't work. It took an intervention of the Lord. And the picture there is, no matter how much money you sell to sell your, or give to sell your soul to the devil, it will never be enough. And apart from the hand of the Lord, nobody's going to be spared. Because God's a jealous God. He requires our allegiance. It's not, well, I'll give you grace and you can do whatever you want. We're his. We were bought and paid for with a price. Amen? And so we see that as the Assyrians ultimately are turned away, and Jerusalem would be spared destruction for a little less than 100 years. And then would come the Babylonians, followed by the Medes and the Persians, followed by the Greeks, Followed by the Romans. Why is that important to us? Because the Jewish people still haven't come to see Jesus Christ as Messiah. And that's God's desire. That all men be saved, especially His own people. And so as we look forward, greater things than these are coming. And so, as King Sennacherib opens up his conquest, we've kind of seen that now play out a little bit on the world stage. And you can look back at some of these guys in in history, really even before the time that the Jewish people were in the Promised Land. Pharaoh Imhotep was one of those. Ultimately, as the pharaohs brought the Jewish people into captivity, they spent 400 years in captivity, amen? What did they learn from the 400 years in captivity? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. They weren't on the other side of the Red Sea for five minutes before they started bellyaching and whining to God and wanting to go right back over where they had just been in bondage for 400 years. What did they learn from the locusts? Obviously, nothing. Because the Assyrians came. And I'm not ta- I'm talking in a general sense here. I'm sure there were individual Jewish people who said, okay, I get it. What did they learn from the Babylonians? Uh, nothing. You get the picture? What did they learn from the Persians? Zip, nada. Greeks, not a bit. Romans, so little 
that the Romans sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and there hasn't been one for 2,000 years. And they're still not believing in Messiah. And God's not done. They're still His people. And He has a covenant which He said He made and that He would keep. And His Word declares, Paul writes it in the book of Romans, that one day all Israel will be saved. They're not saved. And He says that these things came because of the things that were done to the Jewish people and to the land. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 3. And so the day of the Lord begins to unfold. Now as we pick up in chapter 2, I want you to notice how things begin to ramp up. You remember what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. He said, these things will begin to increase as birth pangs of a pregnant woman. For all you ladies in here, I need to say no more. For you guys, here's how it works. At about two months out, you kind of get some birth pains, and it's kind of like, oh, and you've, you may have seen this in your wife. She'll be walking around, and say, oh. And then about an hour and a half later, it's kind of like, hmm, oh. And then you get down to that last month, and it's about, you know, every three or four hours, kind of like, oh. You can tell they hurt more. And then if you have a son like we do in Austin, who was almost born on the 330, once the pains start to get a couple of minutes apart, it is a foregone conclusion. The baby's coming. Going to happen. They ramp up in two things, timing and intensity. They're closer together, and they're more painful. And so when Jesus says that, now notice as you read the rest of the book of Joel, that is exactly what happens in this little book. It starts off with locusts. That wasn't good enough. Famine, people die. In that day and time, a lot of people die. Then the Assyrians come. Even more people die, and they wipe out all of the farmland. It takes a long time to recover from that when you can't go down to Fred's sheep store, Okay. You can't call somebody up, hey, uh, could you fly us in a load of sheep? Because we lost all of our sheep to the Assyrians. It was a long process. And more people died. But as we begin to look at these things, you're going to see that God intends for us to understand that they will get closer together. Now think about human history. What's happened in the last hundred years? You realize in the last hundred years... There's only been three and a half years where there was not a substantial war on the face of the earth in the last hundred years. Only three and a half years. From World War I to this day and time, three and one half years where there was not a substantial war on the face of the earth. Of course, the Second World War was in that particular time frame. Korea, Vietnam, the wars in Darfur. African continent has been embroiled in war for almost 40 years now. Blow the trumpet in Zion, verse 1 says, and an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is, notice this, coming. It was just upon, speaking of something that would happen, now he's saying it's coming. For it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. Like the morning clouds that spread over the mountains. We know that, amen? The rim fog, you remember what it's like? Remember the blinding snowstorms with the rim fog? At night? You know what that's like? I don't know how many of you in this room have had the wonderful pleasure of sitting on the sill of your window trying to steer with your toes and you're hanging out trying to see if you're going to die or not. Dark gloominess. And you see it rolling up and we all do this. You're at somebody's house, right? And you see the first little flicker of fog come up from down below. I've got to get out of here! 
fog's coming, the darkness is coming, I won't be able to see. You know what that's like. You know what's going to happen. And then he says, a people come, great and strong. Interesting fact about Israel. The northern boundaries of Israel, the boundaries of Lebanon, Syria, is where Mount Hermon is. And it's actually quite mountainous in that area. It's also got two of the flattest valleys you've ever seen. And so as the armies would come from the north, they would come over the mountain ridges, descend into the valleys. It would be exactly like this. Great and strong. The like of whom has never been. I want to encourage you as we continue, underline some of these statements. The like of whom has never been. Have we seen massive armies? You better believe it. If you know anything about your World War II history, largest tank battle ever fought on, on any continent, Battle of the Bulge. Several thousand German panzers against the United States and the British. Looked like a sea. Nothing like this. It's going to be worse. Going to be more substantial. Nor will there be any such, underline that one, after them. So how do we know that this passage begins to look further forward than even the Assyrians? Because it's speaking of a battle so large and so great and so consuming that there will not ever be another one worse than that one after it. So we know it's looking yet further forward. It's descriptive of the present day things that would happen, but it would not be the present day things that Joel was speaking of. Even for many successive generations, for a fire devours before them. You can kind of begin to see how this is describing a type of warfare that's basically never been employed in large scale. And behind them a flame burns. The land is like a garden of Eden before them, behind them a desolate wilderness. It's describing nuclear warfare. It's exactly what happens. And it goes on to say, Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like that of horses, and like a swift steed they so run, with the noise like chariots. Now remember that Joel has no idea of modern warfare. He hasn't got a clue. So what he's receiving from the Spirit, he's describing in a way that could be understood then and understood now. It's the importance of the prophetic word of God. Had he used at that time, well, they'll be kind of like, uh, well, anti-personnel vehicles, and they'll have guns on top of them, and, you know, they'll probably be large caliber machine guns, 50 caliber or greater. And if he were to describe something like that, everybody would have gone, loopy. And so he uses terminology that we can actually still decipher to this day. Was pertinent then, becomes more clear now. Noise like chariots, over the mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array, and before them the people writhe in pain, and all of their faces are drained of color. And of course, if you know anything about death, that is exactly what happens when people die. Face strains of color. Come white as a sheet. They run like mighty men. They climb a wall like men of war. And everyone marches in formation. They do not break ranks. They do not push one another. And everyone marches in his own column. And though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They seem to be invincible. And they run to and fro in the city, and they run and do not, and onto the wall, and they climb onto houses. They enter windows like a thief, and the earth quakes before them, and the heavens tremble. And of course, it's obviously describing things that are still somewhat indescribable to this day. Of course, with the nuclear exchange, the earth does tremble. 
We used to actually get those earthquakes here in Southern California on a rather regular basis back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. When we used to detonate nuclear weapons over at the now Area 51, Nellis Test Range. The heavens tremble and the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness. And so he uses this day of Lord, the, the Lord as a day of darkness. He just begins to describe all of these troops. And so what he's really saying is that what they would see in Assyria was looking forward to something even worse that was coming. And we can see that this military invasion uh, was, was a part of God's plan. Now we find that hard to believe. And this is one of the problems that we have in our world today. We have a vast majority of Christendom that believes that God will not ever judge sin. Some of them fall in the category of universalists. They just simply believe that in the end God's going to save everybody. He's just a big bucket of love, and he didn't mean any of the judgmental parts that you find in your Bible, has no intention of ever seeing any of these things happen. They were simply there as a metaphor. That is a very dangerous place to stand when you look at what God has already allowed to happen. Because if God didn't mean what he has said about the future, why did he allow what he said about the present to come true? Because to Joel, he saw a locust plague. To Joel, he saw the Assyrians wipe out ten of the twelve tribes and almost take Jerusalem. He was alive when uh, the beginnings of the Babylonian conquest would have taken place. Probably died before that happened, but nonetheless knew that there was another group of people that were strong and mighty and that the Jewish people couldn't stand. And so this invasion that's going to happen, and it will be the most terrible military crisis that Israel has ever faced, and they've faced some terrible military crises, but nothing like what's coming. And as you look at the world stage and you realize what's going on, and when you see how vehemently hated the Jewish people are, universally and globally, think about it for a moment. Try and name for yourself in your mind a single nation that supports Israel more than we do the United States of America. You won't find one. We are their number one ally. And we aren't exactly stellar, amen? We're arming their neighbors. We're selling billions of dollars of munitions, arms, and weaponry to the people that hate the Jews. So if we're the good guys, what do you think's in Israel's future? Because... The world hates them. If you don't believe that, read the record of all of the transactions that have taken place in the UN in the last 50 years. You're going to find that Israel, a little tiny place that has less than one, it has less than three tenths of one percent of the world's population are Jews. Less than three tenths of one percent, and yet 34, 35 percent of everything that's ever debated in the UN is about Israel. And so he says, I'm going to do what I say. And so he goes on, blow the trumpet and let all the inhabitants tremble. He describes a day of darkness, a coming army. It's like this morning cloud. It's a people great and strong. So it's not just a cloud. He says what the cloud is like. It's a massive amount of people. It's a huge army. And of course, by the time we begin to read the book of Revelation, we find out from chapter 6 on that that's exactly what the last days will truly be like when the whole world comes against this little tiny nation. 
The Lord gives a picture of that in the Assyrian invasion. Amos chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 says this, If there's a calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? You see the same principle again? Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. So why do you suppose God gave us all this prophetic word? Because as his people, we're supposed to be the watchmen. Specifically, the pastors of this church called the Christian church are supposed to be the watchmen. Ezekiel chapter 33, if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person taken away in iniquity, but the blood will be required at the watchman's hands. It's one of the reasons that I think pastors are in grave danger who do not teach the full counsel of God's word, that there is a time coming in human history when God is going to pour out his wrath on this earth, period. He is going to do it, and whether you like it or not, isn't going to change God's matter. It isn't going to change his mind. It's not going to change what he's going to do. It's not up to us to say, well, you know, I don't think it's going to happen. It's exactly what the Jewish people have been doing for thousands of years. Well, it's not going to happen. You read conquest after conquest, they're not going to get us. You remember what Jeremiah finally mockingly told the Jewish people in Babylon? He said, go ahead and build houses. You're going to be here a while. Because you ain't learned nothing yet. God's end time trumpet is partially for us. But it's for the world. It's for us to say, you know what? Hey, you know those newspaper uh, headlines that you're reading? That blog you read, that 40-minute spiel on Fox television about Israel. Do you know your Bible says these things would happen? They're for you. It's a day of darkness and gloominess and clouds and thick darkness. Notice the language that's used here. It's not exactly good, is it? So if God is love... And he uses language like this. What do you think it is when he gets down to using language like this? We call it a last resort. The final measure. The things that God doesn't want to do but is forced to do because we are not listening. And so God says, it's going to happen. People say, I don't like it. I hear it. I don't like it. I don't particularly care for it myself, to be quite honest. Someone says, you know, do you, you, know, do you really like talking? No, I really don't. But I don't like talking about a cancer diagnosis either. I don't like talking about heart disease. I don't like talking about diabetes. I don't like talking about those things. Why? Because they cause pain. But if you don't talk about them, what do you think is going to happen? There'll be no lifestyle change and that person will die. Amen? So are you not doing someone who has heart disease a favor when you talk to them about maybe changing their diet and getting rid of some salt and getting a little more exercise and being a little less sedate. Amen? You get the picture? You understand what I'm saying? That's why God is telling us these things. The diagnosis is the patient is deathly ill. The way to avoid succumbing to it is to find Jesus Christ as Lord. Because if you've tasted of eternal life, if you've been born again, then the second death has no hold on you. Because ultimately this culminates at the second death. After the millennial reign of Christ, there's going to be one final judgment, and everybody who does not know who Jesus Christ is and has not professed him as Lord, it's going to cost them their eternity. That's a bad diagnosis, amen? 
you have the cure. But if we wander around the world going, well, it'll never happen. You know, just keep eating bacon. I know you got high cholesterol, but have another pound of bacon, you'll be fine. You understand what I'm saying? That's the job of us. Say, <laughs> look, it's coming. You may not like the diagnoses, but if you don't change your ways, it could cost you your eternity. The clouds are coming. And it will be a people great and strong. It will also be a fire that devours before them. And I want you to focus in. Again, there are pictures of these things. When you, when you look at the people great and strong. When the Antichrist finally comes on the scene, because that's going to be the ultimate fulfillment of the of the true beginning of the actual last days, it's the rapture of the church, that's the start. When these things begin to unfold, remember that the Antichrist is going to be hailed as a world hero. He's going to come on the scene and people are going to love him. I mean, Dancing with the Stars is going down. You know, I'm telling you, O'Reilly's off the air. It's going to be the Antichrist Hour or whatever. 24-7, the Antichrist Channel. And it isn't going to be death and destruction. It's going to be everybody's going to get everything paid for. You're going to have one world currency. You just have a little chip in your forehead or your hand. You just kind of go buy it. You'll be able to buy and sell all you want. Your world religion will be completely inclusive. going to include everybody. For the first time in human history, you're going to have a Jew and a Gentile and a Mormon and a Muslim all in church together. They're going to be going, praise Allah Jehovah, or something. I don't know. I don't know what they're going to call him. They're going to make up some new name. Probably be praise whoever the Antichrist's actual name is. That's his title. Man, hasn't it been good? I mean, he solved the world's monetary problems. I mean, my goodness, the debt from the United States alone almost wiped us out, but he took care of it. Look at us, all these world religions gathered together. Isn't this wonderful? And there's no more national infighting. I mean, we all are under the same government. For three and a half years. And then all of a sudden, Revelation 13 says he performs great signs. So even that he makes fire come down from heaven in the sight of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by the signs that he does. The Antichrist is going to be a show. I mean, you, th- you think some of these Vegas magicians can make things appear and disappear. He's going to do it in the heavens. Coalition of armies will then begin to gather because he's going to have the power of the entire world at his disposal. So now do you see how you could gather an army that would look like thick clouds rolling over the mountain? You see, if it was just the Syrians, not happening. If it's just the Russians in the region, not happening. If it's even the Chinese, not going to happen. But if it's an army of the one world government coming against the only nation left on earth who actually still is clinging to belief that there is one God, that would be the Jewish people, by the way, And all of a sudden, there's 144 Jewish evangelists out in the world just spreading the gospel as much as they possibly can, and they're dying, and they're being miraculously healed and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And finally, the Antichrist says, you know what, enough's enough. I'm bringing my army against them. And so it says, a fire devours before them, behind them a flame burns, and the land is like a garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. Those things in type happened with the Assyrians, happened with the Babylonians, happened with the Russian invasions, the Roman invasions, all of them. 
when they came, it was a bad scene. But it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. As you look at these things, notice what it says. It says it's, their appearance were, were like horses. Speed, sound, devastation coming towards Jerusalem. These things that are hard for us to understand right now. Let me give you a little clue. Having been to Israel, Israel is no slouch militarily. And they aren't telling the world what they actually have militarily. There is nobody who's prepared for what they can actually do. The United States would be fine. But the technologies that they possess are extremely formidable. And they ain't playing. If Iran continues to pursue a nuclear weapon, which they will, I am willing to stake my reputation that the Israelis will deal with it if they have to, by themselves. And they won't need anybody else to help them. They can do it. Now, it will look like they had help. But they don't need us. Their appearance is like horses, swift steeds. If you look back at military history, it wasn't until the turn of the 19th century that a column of soldiers could move more than two to five miles an hour. We now have mechanized infantry, cavalry, air cavalry. Our osprey chopper, they're actually rotor craft, over 200 miles an hour can move entire platoons of men. We now are at the place to where they can have the speed of horses. They didn't even have the speed of horses a hundred years ago. So that didn't exist. They're talking about the whole army moving that fast. They're not talking about a couple of soldiers running that fast. Sure, if you got Usain Bolt and he did it, you know, maybe one guy can go that fast. They're talking about the whole army moving that fast. It's insane. Still be tough to pull off. But it surely couldn't happen with the Assyrians. They actually had horses. And so in a little way, they'd look, and as the cavalry troops would march forward and ride into battle, the Assyrians were known for a couple of things, generally speaking, in warfare. One of them, they were the first to manufacture in mass numbers bows made out of compound materials. Up until that time, basically a bow was a bent stick with a bunch of gut twine on it. They were capable of shooting an arrow maybe 50 yards. The Assyrians developed lamination, and they put together horn with several different types of wood, and the Assyrian bows could actually shoot through armor. So, pretty formidable, given a bunch of guys like David with slings, Amen. It's kind of like, oh, ooh, ooh, big guy, you've got a sling. Ooh, I'm scared. So the Assyrians sit back 100 yards away. <laughs> now imagine you have the things that we have today. AC-130 gunship that flies over station, completely controlled by geosynchronous satellites. Has a 105 millimeter cannon inside it that can fire a thousand rounds an hour. Computerized machine guns that can lay down a bullet in every square inch of a football field in 15 minutes. Multiply times who knows how many. We've never seen those things in massive use in warfare. We've never used them in warfare other than sporadically they will be men of war running like mighty men you see that fulfillment of the Assyrians it would have seemed like that to them they were zealous they were fierce they were disciplined courageous extremely victorious invincible they were unstoppable when you get home look at a map Look at where the center of modern-day Iraq is, and then imagine an army 
of at least a quarter of a million soldiers, more than half of them on horseback, marching from Nineveh over through the north of what is now Turkey and Syria and modern-day Lebanon, and then descending down through this little tiny country, Israel, and destroying everything in their path. Fierce and formidable. Now, can you imagine if one guy controlled the entire world's military today? what that would actually look like? Infinitely more powerful. And as we wrap this up tonight, notice the supernatural element here, that literally the creation will be upset. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun, the moon grow dark. Uh, These supernatural demonstrations are going to proceed and follow the Antichrist army. Why that is? I can't give you a good answer. I I don't know. But the heavens and the earth are going to shake. I know that. There's going to be something supernatural about it. Whether it's going to cause problems in our... I don't know. Maybe it's space weapons. I don't know if you've been watching any of the things that we've been developing lately, but if you've ever seen a rail gun uh, in operation, you're talking about a projectile being launched at eight times the speed of sound. The impact of a, of a projectile the size of a bowling ball has the force equivalent of 20,000 pounds of TNT. It's the thing this big. It's not even explosive. It's just a hard projectile. Go in one side of a battleship and out the other side. What if we start launching stuff from space? We've never actually told everybody what we've got floating around up there. But I guarantee you some of it's not good. Those days are coming. We think about, oh, we're getting nicer, and, you know, people like each other more than they used to. And you see how it plays right into the Antichrist plans? He'll go, yeah, exactly. We like each other. We love each other. We're just all buddy, buddy. And then all of a sudden, the heavens begin to shake, the earth begins to tremble. Isaiah 40 says the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as small dust on the scales. The reference there in verse 15 of Isaiah 40 is this. Probably none of you have ever gone to the supermarket and gotten a couple of paper towels before you weigh your vegetables. You know, you got your little thing of bananas. And you start wiping it down, getting it really clean because you don't want to pay for the dust. That's how unimportant the nations of the earth are as far as God's concerned with that regard. There's dust, fine dust, small dust. The world's nations are going to go, wow, we're on the Antichrist side, and God's going to go, it don't matter. You ever wondered why Joshua is so specific when he said, choose this day whom you will serve? And he replied for his family, he said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you know why? Because he requires that of everybody. God says, choose this day whom you will serve. And you got two choices. Satan and everything that is his. Or the Lord God Almighty and everything that is his. Most of the earth is turning towards Satan and everything that's his even though it looks like it's profitable to do so, it's popular to do so, it's politically correct to do so, it is the majority view, it is unpopular to be a Christian. Amen? If you haven't come across that yet, you will. It's very unpopular to be a Christian today. It's going to get more unpopular. So get ready. It's okay. Because we know who wins in the end. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. And in all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will guide and direct your path. Amen? Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. You, you see, when the tribulation comes, if you're in Christ, you don't need to worry about it because you're not going to be here. And if it comes after we're gone... There's one thing you will want to have done before you left this earth. And that's tell everybody about Jesus. Amen? Be a watchman. Let's pray.
Father, thanks for this time tonight. And Lord, we do, as we study these passages, just wonder how you as a just and a loving God, Lord, could allow these things to unfold. It only gives us pause to think of how much worse this world is going to get. And Lord, that is a frightening thing. Lord, it's a frightening thing for those of us that have children. It's a frightening thing for those of us who are young, for those of us who are a little older. Lord, we look forward to to stepping off of this rock and into eternity with you. God, there is work to be done. That harvest field is, in fact, white. And the laborers are few to go into it. And so, Lord, make us laborers in your harvest field. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. Lord, make us busy this week about your business, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. Don't forget, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? So it's not like it's difficult to escape.